back, everyone. This is Sam. And this is Corrine. And we are two OncDocs. In this week's episode, we will be discussing pancreatic cancer, and we'll go over important details on the epidemiology, diagnosis, and treatment of pancreatic cancer. This is a super high-yield topic, I think, for the boards. Um, there's a lot of testable buzzwords and vignettes. And then, obviously, when you're on consult services, unfortunately, I think almost everyone will see a pancreatic cancer case at some point in their training or their clinical practice. And so to start us off, what are the risk factors for pancreatic adenocarcinoma? So unfortunately, more than 57,000 Americans develop pancreatic cancer a year. There are some known factors such as smoking, obesity, among others. And then there are many genetic risk factors, including BRCA1 and 2, PALB2, ATM, CDKN2A, STK11, which is seen in Pugh's Jeggers, and many, which is where you have the mutation in TP53. Definitely. So I think you already listed at least six buzzwords that I think everyone should know. And those are the genetic risk factors. So when they're giving you a vignette, they may actually give you a breast cancer patient. And then they say, what other cancer are they at risk for? And so you need to be cognizant and aware of the genetic factors for pancreatic cancer. And next up, what are the somatic mutations that we commonly see in pancreatic cancer? So we can see KRAS, TP53, CDK. N2A, SMAD4, MLL3, 1% to 2% of patients are MSI high, which can also be genetic predisposition. And so all patients with pancreatic cancer should have both germline genomic testing and targeted somatic testing because this may influence their choice of initial treatment and prompt referral for genetic counseling. Agreed. I think it's so important to test everyone. There's very few times where we say always or never in medicine, and this is an always. So every single person with pancreatic cancer should be tested for both germline and somatic mutations. And so what is the clinical presentation for pancreatic cancer? So symptoms can include obstructive jaundice, back or epigastric pain, constitutional symptoms, including weight loss, as well as new onset diabetes for patients over the age of 50. And I think the new onset diabetes was definitely a vignette for our ITEs as well as our boards. And so once we have a suspicion, what's our workup for a suspected pancreatic cancer? So we have labs, including CA-199 and liver function tests. We will do a CT abdomen with pancreatic protocol, as well as CT chest and pelvis. Sometimes an MRI of the abdomen is needed for indeterminate lesions. Uh, we have a guest guest on our episode today, so if you hear <laughs> doing Val is on. <laughs> yeah, Val is helping us out with this episode. Keep going, Corrine. So an ERCP may be needed if there's biliary obstruction, and this can be therapeutic in terms of stent placement, and also in some cases offer a diagnosis if a biopsy is done. You can otherwise do image guided biopsy by CT or EUS or endoscopic ultrasound, and then if metastatic disease is suspected, it's best to biopsy a metastatic site. And then sometimes if there's suspicion for peritoneal spread, then a laparoscopy is also needed. Absolutely. I think one golden statement you just made in that great review was biopsying what you think could be a distant metastatic site. Um, So that not only diagnoses, but it also stages pancreatic cancer and something that we also utilize in other solid tumors. So go after what you don't think the primary lesion is. Um, And so I know you also mentioned CA-199, a blood marker that we sometimes watch for in pancreatic adenocarcinoma, but can it be elevated for other reasons? Yes, it doesn't necessarily indicate cancer. It can be elevated from cholangitis, inflammation, obstruction, whether it's benign or malignant. 
And then one important pearl is that CN99 will be undetectable in Lewis antigen negative individuals. Great. So up next, how do we stage or do we think about staging pancreatic adenocarcinoma? So instead of TNM, we're going to think of pancreatic cancer as resectable, borderline resectable, locally advanced, or metastatic. And it's really important to have a multidisciplinary discussion in order to determine who is resectable. Absolutely. And so when we are thinking about resectable pancreatic cancer, how do we decide that? So tumors that are resectable have no contact with the arteries or they have contact with the veins, which are the superior mesenteric vein or the portal vein, but less than 180 degrees. And then if surgery upfront is chosen, it's still recommended that these patients get six months of adjuvant chemotherapy, ideally within eight weeks of surgery. Definitely. So even if you are lower stage and you have an awesome surgeon and awesome surgical resection, this is such an aggressive disease that we give almost every single person adjuvant chemotherapy for, like you said, six months. So what are the types of surgeries that we utilize in pancreatic cancer? So for tumors of the head of the pancreas, we can do a Whipple procedure also called pancreaticoduodenectomy. And this is where the pancreatic head is removed along with part of the duodenum, the jejunum, the common bile duct, the gallbladder, and part of the stomach. And then outcomes for this are best in a center where there are large numbers of these performed. And then if you have a tumor of the tail, these are usually discovered at later stages by the time they cause symptoms. And sometimes the spleen also needs to be removed. Exactly. And so I think when we're thinking about removing those pancreatic tail tumors along with the spleen, a testable question and something that we need to remember is those patients with the spleen comes out, they have to be vaccinated against encapsulated bacteria. I know we've talked about that in other episodes and it still holds true for these patients who if the spleen comes out, think about those encapsulated bacteria and how to vaccinate them. And so what is borderline resectable definition in pancreatic cancer? So borderline resectable are those that have contact with the vein, which is more than 180 degrees or have abutment on the artery, but it's less than 180 degrees. And the arteries are the celiac axis, the superior mesenteric artery, or the common hepatic artery. And all of these will need neoadjuvant chemotherapy. Definitely. So I think that you need to know everyone going into their tests, um, they need to know about the greater than or less than 180 degrees along the veins and the arteries and what that means in resectability or borderline resectability. This is very testable. This is definitely set on our ITs and our board exams, something that we need to be aware of, even though we're not surgeons, but we're medical oncologists. And so lastly, what is locally advanced or metastatic pancreatic cancer? So locally advanced is when you have abutment on the arteries more than 180 degrees or significant involvement of the mesenteric vessels. And these will usually get neoadjuvant chemotherapy up front and then be reassessed for resection. And then metastatic disease is obviously when you have metastatic sites of involvement. And this is unfortunately how 50% of patients present. Yeah. And so what are adjuvant systemic therapy options that we talk about after patients have had upfront resection? So as we mentioned earlier, almost all patients, even those that are T1 and 0, need adjuvant chemotherapy if they have upfront resection. And so for those that are elderly or a lot of comorbidities, think of gemcitabine with either capecitabine or by itself. For those that have an ECOG of 0 to 1, consider gemcitabine with nabpaclitaxel or abraxane. And for the fittest patients, consider modified fulfirinox. And you need a normal bilirubin level for those patients. 
And then for those that have an R1 resection, if the margins are less or equal to one millimeter, you can consider adding radiation. Great. Um, and so what about neoadjuvant chemotherapy regimens? So as we mentioned, all those that are borderline resectable or locally advanced will need neoadjuvant chemotherapy. And so the standard of care is chemo for four to six months. And again, the options are based on performance status. So in order of best to worst performance status, you have modified fulfirinox, followed by gemcitabine abraxane, followed by gemcitabine alone. And then you'll assess resectability with a CT scan. And then whether to add chemo radiation after chemo is a controversial point. The LAP-07 trial showed no difference in adding chemo RT after chemo in terms of overall survival benefits, but there was a progression-free survival benefit. And so basically the addition of radiation is considered if you use either gemcitabine or gemcitabine with capecitabine as the adjuvant regimen. And then for those with node positive disease or positive margins, also consider radiation. Great. And so you've mentioned the chemotherapy regimen, fulfirinox. Um, can you actually break that down into what those drugs are and maybe a little bit about toxicities we can go over next? Yes. So fulfirinox includes 5-FU, arenotecan, leucovorin, and oxaliplatin. These are given every 14 days and all drugs are given on the first day, but 5-FU is given as an infusion over 48 hours. And so patients have to come in for port disconnect. And some centers may omit the 5-FU bolus in order to reduce the risk of myelosuppression. And then usually patients get a GCSF when they come back for their port disconnect in order to minimize things like neutropenic fever. Great. And so I think one important thing to note is the leucovorin component. That is not a chemo drug. Um, that is a drug that we utilize in fulfirinox and fulfiri and fulfox, many of the GI regimens. It is different than when we use leucovorin with methotrexate, which we actually use it as a rescue medication. Um, in these regimens, the leucovorin is actually to help prolong the half-life of 5-FU. So it's actually to keep the 5-FU in the active form for a longer than possible um, without the leucovorin. So it's a little different than a rescue mechanism. And as you mentioned, the GCSF is to prevent some of the toxicities. So can you tell me more about the toxicities of fulfirinox? So all of the drugs can cause diarrhea, but there are some buzzwords to know in terms of other toxicities. So for oxaliplatin, think of laryngopharyngeal diastasia, which is dysphagia, dyspnea, and jaw spasms. Also can cause paresthesias and can cause allergic reactions such as rash, urticaria, or anaphylaxis, and some patients may require desensitization. For arenotecan, it can elevate your bilirubin. It can cause acute cholinergic syndrome, including diarrhea, abdominal pain, hypotension, dizziness, and malaise, as well as increased salivation. And then for five of you, think of stomatitis, alopecia, hand foot syndrome, chest pain, and tachycardia. Great. So that chest pain with the 5-FU, is act, it can feel like crushing um, chest pain like an MI, and it's actually from coronary vasospasm while that 5-FU is running, and so stopping it, um, it, it will reverse that vasospasm. You can't tell it apart from an MI, so if you get that page overnight of a patient who's hooked up to their 5-FU having chest pain, they got to go to the ER. Um, they need a troponin, they need an EKG to rule out an MI. 
And two other things that you guys should know going into your ITs and your boards is something that can increase the toxicities of these drugs. And one of them is Gilbert's disease. And so that is the UGT1A1 mutation that can increase toxicity for arinotecan. And if a patient has DPD deficiency, that can increase the toxicity for 5-FU. So you guys should definitely know those buzzwords going into your tests as well as your consult services. And so what are our treatment options for metastatic pancreatic cancer? So again, performance status drives the, the, the decision. So fulfernox for the fittest patients, otherwise gemcitabine, napaclitaxel. But the response rates and median survival is still poor. So really encourage clinical trials if you have some available. And then there are some patients with a poor performance status at diagnosis that should be considered for palliation and best supportive care. And then for recurrent disease, you can consider repeating the systemic therapy previously given if it has been over six months. You can also consider in the second line setting, if a patient had been treated with a gemcitabine-based regimen, um, with you can use second line nanoliposomal arinotecan, which based on the Napoli trial published in the Lancet of 2016, it showed that the addition of the nanoliposomal arinotecan with 5-FU was better than 5-FU alone. And that is definitely testable for you guys. And so do we have any maintenance therapies for pancreatic cancer? So the POLO trial led to the FDA approval of Olaparib in 2019, and this is for Olaparib after platinum therapy for at least 16 weeks for those with a germline BRCA1 or 2. One of the criticisms of the study was that it was Olaparib versus placebo, and many of these patients may have continued on chemo if they were tolerating it and having a response. And the PFS difference was 7.4 versus 3.8 months with no difference in OS. And then rucaparib is also an option for those with BRCA1, 2, or PALB2 mutations. Great. And so what other targeted therapies do we need to be aware of in pancreatic cancer? So for those that are BRAF, B600E, as in other tumors, consider dibrafenib, trimitinib. For those that are MSI high, you can consider immunotherapy in the form of pembrolizumab or nivolumab. For those that have NTRAC mutations in any cancer, think of entrectinib or larotrectinib. And then for those with RET, mutations, think of selpercatinib. Definitely. And clinical trials is always the right answer for these patients when we're thinking about second line and subsequent line therapies, as long as they have good performance status. And so lastly, walk me through other supportive care um, considerations that we need to have in this population. So pain management is often an issue for pancreatic cancer patients. So we co-manage often with palliative care. Some patients may need a celiac blocks uh, or celiac plexus neuro neurolysis in order to control pain. Patients, as I mentioned earlier, may need ERCP if they're obstructed. Those with a duodenal outlet obstruction may need a duodenal stent or a GJ tube. Uh, for those with ascites, they may require paracentesis or at the end of life, you can consider intraperitoneal catheters to help manage ascites. And then some patients may need appetite stimulants and some may need pancreatic insufficiency enzyme replacement, such as Creon. So this was an awesome episode. Thank you for going through it with us. And what are our key takeaways for pancreatic adenocarcinoma? So definitely know the key differences in terms of what's resectable, borderline resectable, locally advanced. And so resectable are those that have no arterial tumor contact or contact with the superior mesenteric or portal veins, which is less than 180 degrees. Those that are borderline resectable are those that contact the veins, but more than 180 degrees or contact the arteries, but less than 180 degrees. And those arteries are the celiac axis, the superior mesenteric artery, or the common hepatic artery. And all of these will need new adjuvant chemotherapy. 
For those that are locally advanced, those abut the arteries more than 180 degrees or significantly involve the mesenteric vessels. Again, these need neoadjuvant chemotherapy. And then the chemotherapy regimens generally for the fittest patients will be modified fulfirinox, otherwise will be gemcitabine, nap, paclitaxel. Great. So as always, guys, thank you for listening. Good luck with studying for your boards. And please feel free to reach out to us with corrections or comments on our Instagram or our Twitter, 2OncDocs. And lastly, if you guys are enjoying these episodes, please feel free to leave us a review on our Apple podcast page. Thank you and have a great week.